Eric Nadell, uh, welcome to the podcast. So great to see you. Uh, Texas uh, Hall of Fame uh, radio broadcaster for the World Series Texas Rangers. How does it feel? It's surreal. It's like I'm living in an alternate universe, Brian, after doing this job for 45 years and having the Rangers never win the World Series, having played in it twice prior to this year yeah. and having lost both once where they were a strike away from winning it, not once, but twice to have actually won it is something I really didn't expect to happen in my lifetime. After wow. the disappointment of 2011, where they came so close and didn't win, I really didn't think I would see it. And you know, winning the World Series this year came on the heels of six consecutive losing seasons. Uh, so you certainly wouldn't have expected going into the season that the Rangers would wind up, you know, on top out of 30 teams when this season was over. Wow. Wow. I mean, it, yeah, it must just be like completely. I mean, that's like, that's it, right? I mean, that's what you're gunning for every year and to get yeah. so close and then to finally get it it's got to be like holy moly yeah the whole city is still celebrating um and we're really talking about multiple cities here dallas fort worth arlington the whole area you see ranger caps and gear everywhere now uh -huh. you know which wasn't the case before uh almost every day i'd say every day really something happens to remind me that this really did happen you see somebody wearing a rangers world series champion t-shirt yeah. or somebody says something to me or sends me a text or an email out of the blue, you know, reminding me that, you know, this really did happen. The Rangers really did win the world series. And it's probably too early to say, but, but like, what is the atmosphere for next year? I mean, I, 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 I'm not a huge baseball guy. You know, this, I'm more of a music guy, but um, I feel like every time a, a sports team or a franchise wins either the Super Bowl or the World Series, they lose a lot of the players. And like, what's the vibe? What's the feeling in the in the clubhouse for for next year? Yeah, the Rangers are actually in pretty good shape. They're only going to lose, you know, a couple of the key players from this year. Uh, it's still a little bit too early in the off season to see how they're going to go about replacing them. Um, but they have a lot of good young players. Uh, who established themselves this year as star players, and they've got a very strong farm system. So I think the prognosis is very good for the Rangers remaining serious contenders, you know, for the next few years at least. That's awesome. Well, obviously, congratulations. Uh, and I'm sure we could talk baseball for the for days and days. But <clears throat> this podcast is about music, and you happen to be one of the most dedicated live music supporters uh i i i just i think the way that we met is is really indicative of your love and and passion for for music and that was you know you happened to be in phoenix for spring training and you randomly picked the rhythm room one night and i happened to be playing and right. then fast forward you know a decade and we're still pals and you you know you still uh, you book the Sweet Remains in Dallas. We've sang the national anthem for a Rangers game. Like you're still very much a part of my story. And um, as a huge music fan that you are, I'm, I'm curious how it started. And maybe you could share some early musical memories um, because music isn't just a passing thing for you. It's a, it's obviously a, a it's a passion. So 
I know yeah. you grew up in Brooklyn and and can you share some some early musical memories? Sure, there was always music in my house growing up as I recall. Um my mom was always playing either Frank Sinatra records or Nat King Cole uh or show music. We had uh Oklahoma, My Fair Lady, South Pacific, uh The King and I, mm. uh West Side Story, uh always blasting out and i had a sister three years older still do and she started introducing me to rock and roll i'll never forget the first elvis presley record that she brought home it was a 78 you know it was about the size and thickness of a dinner plate and it had the hound dog on one side and don't be cruel on the other side you ain't nothing but a hound dog And we wore that thing out. And that record really won me over to rock and roll. And then we we bought all the rest of the Elvis Presley records. I think Jailhouse Rock was next and Heartbreak Hotel and who knows how many more. Uh, the first album that I ever bought was the first Buddy Holly and the Crickets album. I think it was called Meet the Crickets or something or The Fabulous Crickets, something like that. But that was the first uh, album that I ever bought. Hmm. And my sister then morphed really from being a, a rock and roller into a folky. She was going, we lived in Brooklyn, New York. She was going to Greenwich Village every weekend and sitting around Washington Square listening to folk singers. And next thing you knew, she was bringing home uh, Bob Dylan records and Joan Baez, mm -hmm. uh, Dave Van Ronk, Phil Oaks, you know, the mm -hmm. legend, Pete Seeger, legendary, you know, folk performers from New York city. And I fell in love with those guys. So that that's kind of how it all got started for me. And then the first live show that I ever saw, uh, I believe was a, uh, a Christmas show, Christmas spectacular where Murray, the K who was the number one rock and roll disc jockey in New York had an annual Christmas show at the Fox theater downtown. And he would bring in a whole bunch of acts. And I think I saw the Shangri-Las, and uh, Hannibal and the Headhunters and uh, a bunch of Motown groups primarily oh. in the first show that I ever saw. And I remember the second show I saw was an outdoor concert at an amusement park featuring the Four Seasons. Oh, wow. And it was before they were called Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, but they already had a number of uh, number one hits already. They had Cherry and Big Girls Don't Cry. And uh, that was... That was an eye opener for me, actually yeah. getting to to be up front in a mosh pit, watching the Four Seasons. Uh, so those were those are my earliest experiences that I remember with live music. Yeah, and and you know Brooklyn, obviously, in New York City was a hub, as you say, for really started that that kind of contemporary folk scene and and all the clubs in Greenwich Village. Like, did you did you do that as well? Did you kind of follow your your sister to some of these clubs on 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 Bleecker and yeah, once I was old enough to go, I think you had to be 16 to get in. They weren't serving alcohol in some of them. And some of them had afternoon shows, which were alcohol-free. I specifically remember going to see a band called Jim Queskin and the Jug Band. And they were from Cambridge. And they were 
they were really funky. They were like the predecessors of Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Mm. And uh, jug bands were kind of popular in the Northeast back yeah. then. Yeah. And uh, that one was the was the uh, was the leading jug band. And that, I remember specifically that was the first show that I went to uh, without any parental supervision, without my sister. Just a few of us friends went right after we had turned 16 and, and caught Jim Kweskin in the jug band at uh, I think it was called Cafe Agogo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was right on the same strip with the bitter end and a few of those other places. Yeah. Legendary club. I mean. And and kind of the the heart and soul of of the, of that scene. What an awesome time to be alive and to and to be a part of it in real time, you know. And to yeah, just... and you know, it was also it was very political back then. It was part of the you know protest movement against the Vietnam War. You know, that was all just kind of getting started uh, in the mid '60s. Mm -hmm. And by 1968, the year that I graduated from high school, you know, it was full fledged you know anti war marches seemingly every weekend in there and they were always infused with music um phil oaks had a song called i'm not marching anymore which was a, a really big anti-war anthem back then there was another one i think it was a pete seeger song called uh, waist deep in the big muddy it was back in 1942 i was a member of a good platoon we were on maneuvers in Louisiana one night by the light of the moon. The captain told us to ford a river, that's how it all begun. We were knee deep in the big muddy, the big fool said to push on. Well, the sergeant said, sir, are you sure this is the best way? And those songs would be played over and over again at these protest peace marches uh, while I was a senior in high school. Wow. And is it around this? I mean, obviously, you must have been very active in baseball and, and maybe going to see games. And I mean, you're, th that that area was just so so fertile for so many of your of your passions. Do you think had you grown up somewhere else, would you have been able to really explore both of those two things at the same time? A good question. Maybe not. You know, fortunately, in New York, you know, we had all four of the major professional sports. In fact, we had two teams, you know, in in a few of those sports. And so I was able to go to a game anytime I wanted to go to a game. There was one. either yeah. the Yankees or the Mets were playing during baseball season. And during the winter, either the New York Rangers or the New York Knicks were playing. We also had on Sundays, we had either the Jets or the Giants were at home. So you could always go to a game. So, yeah, I was able to indulge, you know, both of those passions pretty easily. And then you decide to you decide to stay kind of in New England and you attend Brown University. And, and that's where you start to call games. That's where I started to call games. I also had a disc jockey shift on the college radio station. Uh -huh. And that's also when I started to, you know, see lots of live music you know brown had a tremendous concert series there and i i saw one of the earliest concerts of james taylor mm. uh one of the earliest concerts of bonnie Raitt. wow in fact they played together on the same afternoon in a festival sort of setting i remember seeing linda ronstadt and the stone ponies yeah when i was a freshman in college and different drum was the number one song in the country at that time and i saw ray charles and the ray Letts. I saw, you know, all of those groups I saw my freshman year in college. Uh, we 
saw Chicago, think they were already called Chicago and not Chicago Transit, Transit Authority, Authority right. by then. But I remember going and seeing them play in a hockey rink in Walpole, Massachusetts, which was, you know, maybe a half hour away. Yeah. But we were constantly looking for, for live music to see, and it was all around us. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So you graduate from Brown and where do you move after that? Uh, my first job was in Muskegon, Michigan, which was a factory town of about 50,000. That was uh, as far west as you could go in Michigan without falling into the lake. <laughs> and the only concert I ever saw in three years there, uh, where I was the announcer for the Muskegon Mohawks hockey team, a, a professional hockey team at the lowest level of professional sports. But in our hockey arena, we had an Alice Cooper concert ah. on the Welcome to My Nightmare tour. <laughs> and I was not an Alice Cooper fan particularly, but just to have a live concert in Muskegon was a great big deal. Normally, we would go to Grand Rapids, uh, where Grand Rapids, uh, Grand Valley State College had a concert series. And I remember going there and seeing Bob Seeger wow, yeah. for the first time, who was a son of Michigan and a big, yeah. big favorite. I also remember seeing the incredible blues guitarist Rory Gallagher um, from from the UK yeah. playing there on the recommendation of one of the hockey players who was familiar uh, with uh, Rory Gallagher's work. And he had this song called Messing with the Kid, which is still one of my all-time favorite songs. Huh. And uh, anybody who's never heard Rory Gallagher, look up that song, Messing with the Kid, and uh, listen to his guitar work. It's spectacular. I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but you basically relocate to Dallas in 79. Yeah, I had a one year stop in Oklahoma City in 75, which was also great because I saw Elvis Presley live for the only time wow. at the hockey arena there. Uh, also was the first time I ever saw The Who and the first time I saw Bob Dylan play live. All of those were in Oklahoma City in 1975. And then I moved to Dallas, actually, in 1976, still as a hockey announcer, broadcasting for the AAA Dallas Blackhawks hockey team, Chicago Blackhawks farm team. And then in 1979, I started doing baseball for the Texas Rangers. But I'd actually been in Dallas 
since 1976. And the second day I was here, I was able to buy a single ticket in the first row to see Jethro Tull playing in the auditorium at SMU. And that was kind of my introduction to music in Dallas, was seeing, seeing Jethro Tull on day two in Dallas in July of 1976. Well, and maybe let's talk briefly about the Dallas music scene. You're involved with the Kessler Theater, which is where you threw your your birthday parties, and and you've ha- hired me to play at uh, Cafe Momentum, which is an outstanding organization. So can we just talk briefly about maybe those two bits of, of kind of the Dallas music scene and, and how you started to get involved with those two two specific places? Yeah, the Cafe Momentum concert series started late in 2017. Cafe Momentum is a nonprofit restaurant that hires and employs juvenile offenders when they come out of detention. And it gives them a one-year internship that's paid, after which many of them go on to get jobs in other restaurants. Lots of them go on to college. They also receive their high school degrees while they're in the program at Cafe Momentum. And the the chef and founder of the restaurant, Chad Hauser, is a big music fan and asked me if I would help him, you know, get a concert series going where we would have one Sunday a night, one Sunday a month, where we would basically do a house concert with better food. And... Uh, <laughs> do an all-inclusive dinner concert sort of thing for about 100 people. And Dallas doesn't really have a listening room of that size. Uh, there are you know, lots of great larger venues, but there really wasn't a place in Dallas for somebody to play who could sell about 100 tickets. And so it was a great opportunity for me to bring some artists to Dallas who otherwise didn't have a place to play. Mm. We started doing that in 2017 and we're still doing it. And it's been a tremendous series. We've had almost 60 shows over the years. We celebrated our 50th show this past summer with a big concert uh, by the Quaby sisters who are actually from Dallas. They're a, uh, you know, three sisters who sing Western swing. Cool. And they've been on, uh, They've been on Mountain Stage and a bunch of those type of shows a number of occasions. I'm pretty sure they've played at the Grand Ole Opry, too. They all play the fiddle and sing, but they were our uh, they were our 50th anniversary show. And then uh, every May, uh, on or close to my birthday, I put on a larger concert at the Kessler Theater, which holds about 400. And that's always to benefit a, a mental health-related charity. The last few years, it's been for the Grant Halliburton Foundation, which provides uh, mental health programs and suicide prevention programs in local schools. And we've had uh, 12, 11 of those shows. This year will be our 12th show. Hmm. And um, last year, we had Danielle Ponder, a big breakout R&B and soul star, uh, as the headliner of that show. But in past years, we've had... uh, Hal Ketchum and Mark Broussard, mm-hmm. Ruthie Foster, Shamika Copeland, uh, Kaz Haley, uh, among the, the many different headliners we've had in that show. And next year, we will have the lead singer from the old 97s, mm. uh, who are from Dallas, Rhett Miller, uh, as our headliner on May 16th of 2024. How do you, and this, 
this is a question that I'm often asked, but it's, it's, you know, how do you discover new music? Because you just rattle off a bunch of artists that some I knew and some I've maybe heard of, but how are you discovering these artists? Uh, a lot of them come from our radio station, our, our national public radio station that only plays music, KXT 91.7. And people can actually get their app and listen wherever they are. It's Again, it's KXT 91.7 FM. It's a fabulous, eclectic station that plays a lot of local Texas music, but also, um, you know, a lot of indie music, uh, Americana music, what we used to call folk music. You know, not a whole lot of hard rock, but some, uh, some soul, some blues, a little bit of jazz, just a tremendous combination. Mm. And I listened to it religiously, and I, I learned about a lot of new artists there. I have a network of people now who share their musical finds, you know, maybe eight or ten different people, where if we hear somebody new we really like, we'll send it out to, you know, all the people we know who we think will be interested and I also go every year to the 30A Songwriters Festival in Florida in January, which features close to 200 singer-songwriters performing in, you know, small uh, 100 to 200 seat venues uh, over the course of a four-day weekend. And I'm always exposed to tremendous new artists there. So those are the primary ways that, you know, I learn about new music uh, I listen to Sirius XM from time to time as well. Um, the Spectrum, number 28, uh, is the usual station I'll listen to. But I'll listen to some of the more folk-oriented uh, stations on there as well. And every now and then find somebody who I hadn't heard before. Are you going to do that festival um, next month? I'm planning to be there, yeah. I have a ticket. And if nothing gets in the way, I will be there. And, you know, it's an interesting festival because on Saturday and Sunday, it's always Martin Luther King weekend. They have some bigger names and they perform outdoors in a festival-like setting. Uh, but the rest of the shows are all in small bars and restaurants, many of which are not normally music venues, but become that for the weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the festival stage, they have Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, they have Elvis Costello and the Imposters, Roseanne Cash, uh, KT Tunstall, and Grace Potter. Mm. Those are the the big name headliners who will perform outside on a festival stage this year. And then on the smaller venues, um, artists who you would have heard of, like John Oates, mm. and then probably dozens and dozens of others who you've never heard of, but in order to get into the festival, you have to be really good. So you're never disappointed when you go to a show. Yeah. yeah. I recently I saw recently... on uh, social media that you uh, saw Martin Sexton. I did. In fact, uh, on I saw him the day after we won the World Series. Oh, wow. The next day we came back to Texas and I celebrated by going to the Kessler Theater nice. and seeing Martin Sexton. He was sensational. Yeah, yeah I've never seen him live before. Oh my gosh, it's something to behold. It, it it's hard to put into words uh, his his ability, but he just is music. Like that that's the only way that I can describe the the instrument that he's playing, whether it's piano or guitar, is just an extension of his soul. It I don't know how else to describe it. It's like otherworldly, really. I mean, it's it's such. And I and yeah. I recently played a, a benefit. 
um, in Burlington, Vermont, and he was a part of the bill, and we were playing Dylan tunes, and and so I got to sing with him and share the stage with him, and I'm just, I was just in awe. His his whole body is an instrument. It was great. You know, he's not particularly a big sports fan, but I think somebody had explained to him the import of the Rangers having won the World Series for the first time the night before. So he came out and the first song he played was a cover of We Are the Champions, ah. <laughs> which was extremely creative and, uh, and pretty, pretty far from the original uh, version. I want to tell you about a podcast. It's called The Age-Old Question. A podcast for music fans. Have you ever found yourself in a conversation with a friend about one of music's unanswerable questions? What's the greatest decade in music? What's the best use of a song in a movie? Who's the greatest singer of all time? Join me, Rich Price, and my co-host, Clint Bierman, as we have fun answering another age-old question. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So I put on Facebook that we were going to be chatting and I and I asked, you know, if you had an opportunity to ask you a question, uh, what would it be? So let me just let me pull them up because there's some pretty funny ones on here. Now, I grew up in Massachusetts. A lot of my old high school friends are all Sox fans. But let okay. me let me let me pull one up that I kind of got a kick out of. Hold on one second. My buddy up in Flagstaff, Nolan, wanted to know if you could share any Nolan Ryan or Ron Washington stories. Well, here's a great Nolan Ryan story for you. Um, one of the most difficult interviews that I've ever had to do was with Randy Johnson. Randy was pitching for Seattle. It was early in his career. And he had a reputation for not really liking the media all that much and not really wanting having much to do with it. And the day before the Mariners came to Texas to play the Rangers, he had almost thrown a no-hitter in Detroit. He had lost the no-hitter in the ninth inning, and he wound up pitching a one-hitter. And they came to Texas, and I was doing the pregame show at that time where I could interview a player, um, any player that I wanted to, as long as he was willing to do the interview. And usually on the first day of a series, I would interview somebody from the other team, find out what was going on with them. And I was on my way down to the Seattle clubhouse with a couple of different guys in mind, uh, not being Randy Johnson, who I figured wouldn't agree to do it. Uh, but as I was on my way down to the clubhouse in our old stadium, you had to walk through the dugout. And as I walked through the dugout, Randy came walking out to the dugout. And he's easy to identify. You know, he's about eight yeah. feet tall. And uh, <laughs> yeah, hard to miss. So I just stopped him and just on a whim, I said, uh, hey, Randy, I'm, you know, I'm Eric Nadell. I do the broadcast for the Rangers. Uh, would you mind spending, you know, about four minutes with me doing a pregame interview? And he kind of rolled his eyes and he said, all right. And I said, holy cow, I got Randy Johnson on this show. He just almost threw a no hitter. So we sat down in the dugout and I started asking him questions primarily about the near no hitter the day before. And he did not like the questions. Either he didn't like being there, period, or he didn't like the questions. And every question I asked, he kind of answered it in a tone that said, you idiot, blah, 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 blah. And he'd answer the question. And then finally, uh, I took the commercial break at about the two minute mark and I realized I needed to change, change my approach Tactics, here. Yeah. <laughs> and in the second half, 
I started asking him questions about the Mariners team. And he he was a lot better. He he was okay. But anyway, when the interview actually ran about 15 minutes before the game, uh apparently it was on in the Rangers locker room. And when the commercial break happened, the phone rang in our broadcast booth, and the engineer answered the phone, and the guy on the other end was Nolan. And Nolan said, uh, hey, uh, let me talk to Eric. And I got on the phone. I said, hello. He says, hey, uh, uh, Eric, this is Nolan. I said, hey, Nolan, what's going on? He said, I'm just wondering what you said to get Randy so ticked off. He said, I'm really enjoying this interview. He, and I said, I think what I said to get him ticked off was, would you like to be on our pregame show? <laughs> and and Nolan, then Nolan says, I got to go. This second half's about to come on, and I don't want to miss it. <laughs> and you, you called, is this correct? You called Nolan's 500th strikeout? 5,000th strikeout. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was his 5,000th strikeout, and it happened happened in the middle of a game. At that time, I was broadcasting the middle innings as the play-by-play announcer, and my partner, Mark Holtz, was doing the first few innings and the last few innings. And so not a whole lot of dramatic stuff happened in the middle of the game. But on that particular day, Nolan needed, I think, five or six strikeouts to get to 5,000, which was you know, the first time anybody had gotten to that number by a long shot and it happened during one of my innings so i actually got to call it It was the first time i ever got to make a really big historic dramatic call and it was it was really exciting for me i would imagine that that players reaching a milestone like that would be very aware of it right like so he's he knows i'm i'm four short or whatever and and that one in particular the rangers pr director john blake had actually created this gigantic media event around the 5,000 strikeout. You know, it wasn't like a lot of other milestones in baseball that several players have reached. And as you're approaching it, like 300 wins for a pitcher or in one season, 60 home runs for a batter, you know, magic numbers like that. It had never existed before. So, you know, for Nolan to be getting to 5,000, the Rangers PR director was able to create this huge amount of interest in it uh, by compiling a list of all of the players that Nolan had struck out and how many times and how many father and son combinations he had struck out, <laughs> how many he had struck out for each, from each team. Wow. And they, they provided all this information to the media at a time when, you know, nothing like this was going on. You know, this was before we even had internet and, he was managing to get this information out via press releases so that when the day came for Nolan to get that 5,000 strikeout, there were reporters from all over the country and camera crews from all over the country to record this 5,000 strikeout. And it's not like he was going to stop at 5,000. You right. know, he was going to go on and strike out the next guy and get 5,001. So why was 5,000 such a big deal? Only really because the Rangers PR department had created it but Nolan was really aware of it. And as soon as he got the strikeout, the whole Ranger team went running to the mound as if they had won the World Series. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh-huh. But, you know, I was lucky enough to be the one calling that play. Um, speaking of, of 
uh, stadiums, different stadiums. What, what, like, what are some of your top stadiums across the country? Like what, which ones do you love to call from? I love Fenway park, you know, because of all the history involved. Uh, I also love the fact that as they've remodeled the park, they've done a great job of it and they haven't moved the broadcast booth far away from home plate as a lot of stadiums have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, the trend is in the newer stadiums to move the members of the media, including us, up to the very top of the stadium, because where we would like to be, some bank is paying them millions of dollars to have a luxury suite. Now, I understand the economics of it, but it makes our job less fun, you know, when we have a distant view of the field instead of the best seat in the house, which right. is what we used to have. At right. Fenway, we still have the best seat in the house. That's awesome. And, That's awesome. and you know, and I... I just love love calling games there, you know, thinking about Babe Ruth and Ted Williams and guys like that having played there. Um, I love the stadiums that were built in the 60s and, and 70s that were built just for baseball. There's only two of them left, uh, Dodger Stadium in L.A. and Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City. Uh, both of those have, have stood up really well over the years. And of the new stadiums, I think my favorite is Target Field in Minneapolis. It's just more unique than the others. It's just a really pretty place to look at hmm. and very distinctive architecturally. The one other place that's really unique that's worth mentioning, I think, is Seattle. Uh, it used to be called Safeco Field. Now it's called T-Mobile Park because it has a roof, but it's not an, an enclosed stadium. It really has an umbrella hmm. to keep the rain out. But it's an open-air stadium, even when the roof is closed. It just keeps out the rain. And I think that's unique to Seattle, obviously a city that, that gets a lot of rain. Right, 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 right. Speaking of uh, Fenway, my buddy Rob, who now lives in Texas, but I grew up uh, going to school with him, uh, he wants to know why did it take 40 years for the Rangers to realize that they needed an enclosed stadium? It's a good question. When the Rangers built their second ballpark, which was originally just called the ballpark in Arlington uh, and had a couple of name changes and wound up being called Globe Life Park at the end. um, When they built that ballpark, the technology didn't exist to have an affordable retractable roof. There was only one in North America at that time, and that was in Toronto. And the roof cost more than the stadium itself. Hmm. And by a big margin, too. I think the stadium there cost about $200 million, and the roof cost over $300 million. And the Ranger Stadium was funded by the taxpayers in Arlington. And they were not willing to pay two or three times the taxes that they were going to pay for the stadium just to have a roof. Right, right. Within four or five years from the time the Rangers built their stadium, the technology existed to put a roof on a stadium affordably. Hmm. And that's when stadiums like uh, Houston's Minute Maid Park at Arizona's Chase Field, uh, Miami, Milwaukee, all these places started building retractable roof stadiums. But when the Ranger Stadium was built in 1994, it was just a couple of years too early. Hmm. Hmm. And... So it was still a very functional stadium when the Rangers built their third stadium, which is the one we're currently in, Globe Life Field. Um, but we really needed the roof, obviously. Uh, it just was too expensive when the previous yeah. stadium was built. Well, I, I I mentioned that the Sweet Remains got to sing the national anthem from one of those uh, games. And <clears throat> I just remember walking out on the field 
not nervous about singing the anthem, but I remember turning around and like getting lightheaded because it, it's just so enormous and like it it just goes directly. And I felt I, was, I think it's vertigo or something. I was just like a little washy, and then I was like, oh god, I got to sing now. Um, but it is is it one of those stadiums where you are pretty far? Because I think I remember you having to use binoculars to get close enough to to understand what the what the pitch call was or. Yeah, the thing about the stadiums that we've had is they're on a very large footprint of land, so they tend to be much, much larger than Fenway Park, for example, or the park that the Giants play in in San Francisco, which is built on a a very small piece of land, comparatively speaking, Mm -hmm. you know, for a stadium that holds 40 or 50,000 people. Um, It it was one of the largest ones. Um, I think ours and uh, Detroit was also built on a huge parcel of land, uh, Coberica Park, where the Tigers play now. Uh, another one of those that is just absolutely huge. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I'm just looking over some of the comments. Um, my buddy Steve, this is an interesting question, says, what song best exemplifies Nolan Ryan's two no-hitters as a Ranger? What song best exemplifies his two no-hitters as a Ranger? Ooh, some, you know, he had had several misses before he got to those two no hitters, which were his sixth and seventh. He's the only guy to throw more than four. So he already had the record with five, but he had several um, flirtations with no hitters before he finally got the sixth one in 1990 and then the seventh one in 1991. So some song that would indicate Doing something at last would be. <laughs> I'm. I'm. Not, the song's not coming. The song's not coming to mind. Um, but that's the. the what's, what's coming to mind is the Springsteen song "Prove It All Night," which you have to do in a no hitter. But for those particular no hitters, if we came up with some song that that carried the message of doing something at last. At Tom wants to know if you have any George W. Bush stories. Oh, yeah. The the, the best George W. Bush stories uh, involve when he was the Ranger owner, he just loved being down on the field and talking with the players. And he and I both realized at about the same time that if we were going to communicate to all the Ranger players, we better learn Spanish. Because the Rangers in the late 80s and early 90s, when he was the managing general partner of the Rangers, were starting to sign a lot of players from the Caribbean, from Venezuela, Puerto Rico, the Dominican, um, Cuba. And we both started taking Spanish lessons at the same time. Uh, Little did I know that one of his motivations for learning Spanish was so he could use it on the campaign trail when he ran for governor a few years later. But anyway, he and I would practice Spanish with each other. Huh. And we would we would call it remedial Spanish. And we would sit in the dugout during batting practice and and talk bad Spanish to each other. <laughs> the other thing that was interesting was he loved to come on the air with us during the game because he was a huge baseball fan and he had heard 
hundreds and hundreds of broadcasts over the years, and he knew all the terminology. And if you were talking to him on the air during a radio broadcast and someone put the ball in play, he didn't have to pause if he was talking at the time. He would call the play. Hmm. And he knew how to do it. He had he had all the lingo. He he knew the rhythm of the of the game. And he was great. I mean, he could have been a baseball announcer, which Ronald Reagan was before he became president. But, uh, you know, George George could have done that if he had if he had wanted to. He had all the background in it. He just he loved it. He loved baseball on the radio. And uh, the first time that uh, first time he came and uh, visited with us in the booth after he'd been elected governor, uh, he was on the air with us, and he said, uh, you know, I, I still get a chance to listen to the games. I'm glad you guys have a radio station down in Austin. You know, this was before the, the days of satellite radio or MLB apps where you can listen to any game you want. He said, I'm glad you guys have a station in Austin so I can listen to the game. He said, because I sit on the veranda every night smoking a cigar and listening to the Rangers game. That's awesome. And and I said, and I remember saying uh, – saying to my broadcast partners we got to get a veranda in here <laughs> so, so we can smoke cigars but he was he was a wonderful guy to work with he was he was he was fun to work for um he had a great sense of humor you know was extremely humble very self-deprecating hmm. and very good at delegating authority um and you know what when you get into his politics you know, whether you like him or dislike him, it probably has a lot to do with the people he delegated authority to, mm. you know, when he was governor and then when he was president. But as a as a team president, you know, he was he was terrific. Mm. Mm. Um, I don't suppose you, you kept in touch. You don't. I mean, is he is he in your phone? Can you can you? Text um, yeah, I get a Christmas card from him every year and uh, I've been to his office uh, and had coffee with him. You know, he his office is at the Bush Presidential Library, which is just a couple of miles from my house. Hmm. And he still comes out to Ranger games on a regular basis. And, you know, he's just he's just a regular guy, hmm. you know, and I imagine he's, you know, he probably wishes he didn't have to carry all these Secret Service guys with him you know, right. every place he goes. Right. But he's uh, he's a really, really down to earth, humble person. Very, very kind person. I love it. I love, I love, I just love hearing that he's a, a nice guy, you know, like. You, you, yeah, whether you like his politics or not, you know, he's a genuinely, genuinely nice guy. So you're, you'll be back in Phoenix uh, this spring for some spring training games. Have you checked out the the local calendar yet? Do you have any spots uh, that you're looking to, to check out when you're here? I did notice that uh, the Bodines are going to be playing at the MIM. Mm. Uh, early in March, that they've got a two-night gig there. I haven't haven't seen them in many many years. But you've been and to the also before, one of my right? what's that? You, you've seen a show with the Mem note. I've seen several. In fact, I saw live from Laurel Canyon there. Nice, that's right. Uh, and I saw Casey Chambers there one year. I've I've seen several shows there. I try to go to one each spring, and then at the Rebel Lounge, one of my favorite bands from way back that's back on tour this coming year, the Lemonheads are going to be playing at the Rebel Lounge. So I oh, wow. definitely plan on seeing that. Yeah. I haven't haven't gone much deeper into the concert calendar yet, but I did pick out those two. Well, let's go see a show when you're when you're here. Love to sounds love great. To, uh, I'm trying to we think can rock out to the Lemonheads. Maybe they'll do that uh, 
my favorite Mrs. Robinson cover. That's one of my favorite covers by any band of any song wow. all time. Lemonheads, I... Mrs. Robinson. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, thank you for sharing your stories and 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 inspiring me as as just a music fan. That you always find new and exciting bands, and you, and you still take, uh, you know, it's still a priority for you, even when you're working spring training or traveling. You always seem to you always seem to find the best the best shows in town. So, uh, as a fellow music fan, I, I appreciate you. You are an inspiration, sir. <laughs> Thanks. Likewise, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, man. And um, let's let's hang when you're in town and and um, be well. Enjoy the big win. How how uh, how did you celebrate other than going to see Martin Sexton? What are some things that 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 you do uh, to relive that moment of calling that game? Um, Really just trying to go out and mix with people. You know, I've been going to a lot of Dallas Stars hockey games. People tend to recognize me and they want to come over and lots of people are wearing Ranger gear at the hockey games, they all want to talk about it. I've been going to a lot of live shows and people people have worn Ranger stuff. I One of the best shows I've seen in a long time, I had never seen them before. I saw the Flaming Lips. Oh yeah. And all kinds of people were wearing Ranger stuff at that show, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. And it's like every every time I go to a show, it's a, it's a celebration of the Rangers winning because there's there are always people there with Ranger caps, Ranger shirts on, and uh, it's wonderful. Do you ever do you ever go up and like if you aren't getting recognized, do you ever go up and just say, hey, you know, go Rangers to, to random fans or or are if you... we're in a Ranger shirt yeah. or a Ranger cap, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to acknowledge it. I love it. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to seeing you in a couple months in Phoenix and and I'll look at the calendar too. We'll go we'll go uh catch a show while you're here. Sounds great. Thanks, Eric. I'll be in touch. All right, that was fun. Bye. Adios. Son story go.